0: Exodus chapter 12. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus, and so we're in Exodus chapter 12. And we're in verse 43, and we're going to see the rest of chapter 12 and then all of chapter 13. So if you have Exodus twelve forty-three, great, but we're going to, I want to start by reading four verses from Exodus 13, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it together. So I'm going to start by reading Exodus 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. Verse 9. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand... The Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Verse 14. When in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 16. And it shall be a mark on your hand on the front and/or frontlets between your eyes, for a strong hand, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out. Of Egypt, And Father, we pray that we would, we would experience your strong hand as we hear your word, Lord, that your strong hand would reach into our hearts and you would crush what's hard, that you would crush it like a hammer, and that, Lord, that you would bring a fire that burns away all the junk that's keeping us from seeing you as you are. And we pray, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make yourself known to us this morning. Lord, you've already been doing that as we sang our songs to you. You've already been doing that as we've loved one another in fellowship. Do it now, please, Father, as we sit at your feet and hear your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees, says? Amen. So remember where we are in Exodus. Israel has literally just been birthed as a nation. If you remember way back in Genesis when God makes the promise to Abram, out of you I'm going to make a mighty nation that will be a blessing to all the world. And we know the story up to the point that they go into Egypt because of the famine as a, as a people of 75 people. And over the next 400 years they grow into this nation of millions But as they've grown into this nation of millions, they're enslaved by the Egyptians. They're experiencing a severe injustice that God told them they would experience. And then God has done these wonders, these signs, these plagues, these judgments to bring his people out of Egypt. And he's kind of birthed them as a nation. And so really where we are now in the text is really them experiencing their first steps as a nation, but it's interesting because, remember, Moses is the one who's recording this stuff for us. And Moses wants the reader, that's us, he wants us to be more interested in their identity, who they are, than in their location. So we know they've gone a short distance right now. They've gone maybe a day's journey. We don't know for sure where. I mean, there's a lot of different debate about what the journey looks like. But the truth is, Moses wants us to recognize their identity. And it's an identity that God had given them by the work of his strong hand. That's what he gave them. So we're gonna, we're gonna kind of talk about four things. If you have a handout, you can follow along with that. But the, he, here's what we really, really want you to see. We want you to understand that when it comes to us as God's people, those of us who have believed in Jesus, we're God's people. The the Israelites who were chosen by God are God's people. When it comes to our identity as God's people, it's more about what God has done for us than what we do. So let's let's look at this, verse 43 of chapter 51. It's 51, hello, of chapter 12, sorry. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, when you first read that, it sounds racist, doesn't it? It sounds like if you're not an Israelite, you're kind of a second-class citizen, and you can't be a part of God's people. But actually, if you pay attention to what's happening here, especially that last verse we just read, this is actually God not talking about race. It's not Moses or God speaking through Moses exalting race but insisting on a covenant. In fact, what's interesting here is that uh, Moses names five different, at least five different types of people. In verse 43, there's a, a, a specific Hebrew word for foreigner. In verse 45, where it says foreigner, it's a different Hebrew word. In verse 45, where it says hired worker, another word. In verse 48 and 49, where it uses the word stranger, another word. And of course, the word for native in verse 48 and 49 is also different. And, and the, actually, what, what, what God is saying here is that, listen, This is not about the fact that you guys are from the lineage of Abraham as much as that I've promised something to Abraham that's meant to bless all nations. Now, there's a chance here that maybe some of us, a few of us, have some sort of, we're from a Hebrew bloodline, like literally, physically Hebrew. But most of us are not. And the truth is, the promise that God made to uh, Abraham... And he wasn't even a Hebrew. He, uh, he, he basically, from his line, came to Hebrews. But God promised Abraham was meant to bless even us as non-Jewish people, non hebrews And so what's happening here is that God's saying something about what his strong hand does. His strong hand receives anyone who will come to him through covenant. Anyone. It's interesting, this description of what has to happen with this Passover lamb in verse 46 where it says that you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. These are obviously instructions on how they're meant to eat the Passover lamb and prepare the Passover lamb we talked about last week. But it's, there's something interesting about this too because these things do point to Jesus. You cannot separate Jesus from the Jews, from who he is as an Israelite, from the history of Israel in my opinion, from the future of Israel. You can't separate Jesus from that. And also, guess what? He has to stay in the house, so to speak. Also, guess what? John, in John chapter 19, we think quotes this verse, possibly also with Psalm 34, talking about that Jesus, when he was crucified, not a one of his bones was broken. Why is that important? Because we're also called to, to be part of God's people through the new covenant. This is how we Know him. This is how we know he'll receive us. And so in verse 50, here's what we read that they did. It says in verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. I I think this is kind of interesting. Because we just read last week, didn't we, that they've already left. They've left Egypt. And then Moses has kind of given us these details here. And he's given us these details here to kind of say something to us that, that, look, they've already been delivered, so their obedience is in response to the deliverance. Because here's the thing we have to understand when it comes to the people of God and their identity that's given to them by the strong hand of God, and that is that they're not earning their identity through this obedience, they're identifying with, as God's people through their obedience. Big difference. Big difference. Big difference. Can you imagine, for you guys that are parents, okay, can you imagine your child coming to you and saying, what would you have me now do, Daddy? And you say to them, well, you could start by cleaning your room. That would be a good thing. <laughs> it would be a miracle if they did it. But still, they, they, let's just pretend they did it. They actually clean their room. They come back. I, I cleaned my room. Now can I call you Daddy? Now am I your child? How big would you feel about this big? Because you would think, gosh, what have I done to my kid to make them feel like they have to earn a position as my kid? Do you think God's love for you is less than that? Do you think God's love for you is, is, is less provided by grace than that? Now, as God's children, as, as what we're called to be obedient children, we obey. We do what he calls us to do. But that obedience doesn't uh, earn us an identity. It's, it's the way that we show that we are we identify ourselves as his children. Listen, There's a parallel, New Testament parallel with this. In Galatians, the book of Galatians, Paul writing to a group of churches in a place called Galatia, here's what he writes. Listen, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, it's through faith in Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the new covenant. That what Jesus accomplished through his life and death and resurrection provides for us a new covenant, a new contract of love with this God who's made us. And that new contract includes a new identity. This is what we have. His strong hand will receive anyone and give them that new identity if they're willing. I think it's important, and one of the reasons I wanted to allude to, to the Galatians, different Galatian verses in Galatians, Galatians, is because we are all tempted, even those of us who are already Jesus followers, we're all tempted to find our identity in something else. We're all tempted to do this. And God doesn't sort of deny, He doesn't say there's nothing else about you but that you're a Jesus follower. He doesn't deny that. He had this great picture in in, in in the book of Revelation, where every tongue, tribe, and nation is around the throne worshiping Jesus. In other words, after they get their new bodies, they're still seen as different nations and tribes and tongues. So we don't lose kind of our identity, our cultural identity. It just gets completely redeemed. But the thing is, is that we tend to when we tend to kind of make that or anything else, we make our skill set, our sexuality. Our relationships, if those identify us, we are actually, whether we believe it or not or understand it or not, devaluing what God's purchased for us, what he's provided for us by his strong hand. Because he gives us a new identity. But also, look at verse three. If we're gonna, we'll come back to verses one and two of chapter 13. Let's go down to verse three of chapter 13. Because not only does his strong hand receive anybody, but also it's his strong hand that brings us out of bondage. Look at verse three. Then Moses said to the people, "Remember this day, in which you came out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. By a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of this place. No unleavened no leavened bread, sorry, shall be eaten. Today is the month of Abib, you, and you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and when you which He swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this." service in this month. Now, he's talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we talked about last week, right? But what I want you to notice is this, okay? This Feast of Unleavened Bread was for them to remember an experience that they actually already experienced, an action of God that they had already experienced. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was about. It was an action that had to be first experienced before it was remembered, all right? Now, now, what were they experiencing right then, right? When, when Moses is describing this, and when he's giving these orders, they're literally walking out of Egypt. I mean, and that's a kind of a mind-blowing thing, if you remember the context of these people's lives. They had been slaves for generation after generation after generation, poor, mistreated, overworked, looked down upon, treated as disposable, and God, by his strong hand in the miracles, is pulling them out, and they're leaving Egypt wealthy, with all the things that they need, ready to go worship this God that they had not been worshiping for many years. And so as the, what's happening here is, listen, they're experiencing something. There's a, there's, a, there's a literal experience that they're having, a walking away from this place of bondage. But Moses connects to that, listen, this future that they have been promised of possessing the land. So they're already delivered, but they're not yet in that new land. And what he's saying is this listen, he's treating both as, as completely and utter guaranteed realities. In other words, what they're experiencing as, as remember, we're, we're looking back, and so it's kind of hard for us to do this, but think about this. Right now, you're experiencing sitting in this auditorium. This is reality. You're hearing a bald headed American speak at you. This is reality. You're hearing the words of God as we read this. You're hearing the words of God. This is reality. Okay? Just as real is the promise that we will sit before his feet and worship him and hear him. Just as real. This is what he's saying to them. You're walking out of Egypt, but just as real, you're going to possess the promised land. Hmm. So when we talk about his strong hand bringing us out of bondage, we're talking about an action to be experienced. We can't, listen, limit our Christian life, our Christian walk to ideas that we get our head around. We can't limit it to that. He's calling us to action. Not earning anything, but obtaining what he has for us, what he's already provided for us by his strong hand. This is is important, okay? Look at verse 6. He goes on to say, talking about this feast of unleavened bread, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leaven shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because, notice, what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign, it it shall be to you as a sign. On your hand and on a memorial uh, between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this covenant as is appointed from time, uh, from year to year. Now, not only is this bondage an action to be experienced, you're walking out of it, you're going to possess it fully one day, like the Israelites with the land, but also it's a process to be remembered. It's a process to be remembered. Now, now, here in this feast, God commands this feast so that when uh, parents are, do, are, are, are celebrating this feast, they can say to those children, we're doing this because of what God has done for us. We're remembering what God has done for us. Now, it's interesting because what we're really this lesson that we're learning here is that the best way for us to remember what the Lord did for me is to tell somebody else. Uh, Friday, we were spending a long time as trustees praying about you know the future for the church, praying just for all of you guys and just seeking the Lord for what he wants. And one of the things that came up in our prayers, we were grieving over the fact of how little corporate intentional outreach we've had in the last few years. A big part of that, of course, has been COVID. But still, even after lockdowns, we just don't reach out with the gospel corporately. I, mean, I know that some of you guys are really faithful to share Jesus with your friends, but corporately we haven't done much. And we were praying, Lord, well, what should that look like, talking about that? But here's the thing that I've experienced. We had a guy who came and fixed the flat roof at, at Hillcrest a few weeks ago, and and I had a chance to share Jesus with this guy. And God gave me the grace to share with this guy, because he wasn't really interested, but he he would make a comment. It was a, just a segue, and then I kind of would taper it off after, a few, you know, 30 seconds or something just to... Not bombard him and then he'd say something else, like, oh, there's a segue again. And it was just a really good time. And Rory was upstairs, you know, working away. And, and when I got there, I'm like, Did you hear all that? He's like, Yeah, that was good. I'm like, God was doing something there. And the thing was, is that I don't know what's gonna happen to this brother, this guy. You can pray for him. I don't know what's gonna happen to that roofer. God knows. But one of the things that was was a blessing to me was not only did I get the privilege of sharing Jesus with this guy, but I was like, man, how good is it to know Jesus? And this is an amazing thing that when God commands us to go out and share the gospel, you know who benefits the people who hear the gospel and us who share it? We both do. The best way to remember what God, the Lord did for you is to tell someone else. And this is what we're meant to do with our children, right? But here's interesting too. This feast of unleavened bread, it was meant to be a visible reminder. This feast, it was meant to be a tangible reminder of what the Lord had done. God tells us to do this. Now, let's take this home. Let's bring this home to where we are right now as New Testament followers of Jesus, okay? Sometimes the most discouraging thing about being a Christian is feeling like you're not nearly as far, you've not really matured as far as you thought you'd mature at this point in your Christian experience. It can be really tough. You can look at your life and you can go, gosh, you know, I, I didn't think I'd ever blow it like this. Or I didn't think that I thought I would stop falling into this sin. Or I, I thought I would be better at doing this by now. And I wish I could tell you after 35 years of being a Christian that, "Oh, don't worry, it gets much better. But I'll be honest, I, it feels like there's more areas where I go, gosh, I'm, have I ever really done that? And it can be really discouraging. But what we need to remember Okay, If if God's deliverance of us out of bondage, out of our Egypt of sin, if God's deliverance, listen, is, is by his strong hand, then we need to not only have actions that experience that, but we need to have a process of remembering. God, where have you brought me? I can say, by the grace of God, I have not punched another man in over 35 years. I think that's pretty good. don't give me a reason to. <laughs> I, I can say by the grace of God that though I, I use innumerable amounts of, of foul language per day, I can count maybe on one hand how many foul words, foul words have come out of my mouth. Not in my heart, I'll be honest. There's been, those things kind of still stir in my heart, but out of my mouth, I can count probably on one hand how many have come out in 35 years. Sometimes in front of my children, which is really humiliating. How to go back and repent in front of my kids. But the reality is this. God is changing me. He's brought me so far. I have to remember this. You know why? Because if I can know God's brought me this far, he will bring me the rest of the way. Amen? Listen to what Paul, again, writes in 1 Corinthians. And this is one of these texts that is often used to kind of slam you about how bad you're doing. But actually, it's meant to encourage us to press on. Listen, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church that has really fallen into some carnality. They're They're not living... They have a lot of spiritual exercise and expression, but they're not living by the power of the spirit to have changed lives. And so he says to them, listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice what it says, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, when Paul writes this to the Corinthian church, there were people in the Corinthian church who were doing these things. So yes, he is warning them, and it's a serious warning that we best heed, that we do need to be people of repentance. But he's also saying, listen, this isn't you anymore. You are not your temptations. You are even, not even your failures. You are the Lord's. And this is why you can believe that his strong hand, who brings you to a place that you actually read Paul's epistle, his strong hand will bring you to a place that you can live God's, or Paul's epistle. You following me? Look at verse 1 now of chapter 13. We've seen his strong hand receives. Anyone a strong hand brings us out of bondage now, Let's look how his strong hand overcomes our stubbornness. Verse 1 of chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. And then, of course, what we just read was about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's kind of sandwiched between uh, 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 the Feast of Unleavened Bread, no pun intended, is the, the, this idea of the firstborn. So now here's the thing. When when God here talks about the firstborn, notice that he says, All those who open the wound among the people, both man and beast, is mine. So when God is saying, They belong to me, they're mine, it's tempting to go, Oh, okay, he just wants some of what we are. But actually, listen, especially when it comes to the firstborn, remember, God's not denying that everything or everyone in Israel is his. Listen, God said this to Pharaoh, if you remember, or he said this to Moses to say to Pharaoh, back in Exodus chapter 4, thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. So when he says the firstborn is mine, even though he's asking for something specific because he's wanting them to practice something that again is going to be a reminder of his strong hand, he's also talking about, he's not denying the fact that every one of them is his. Now, now this is important. Because this does speak into our identity. It really does. Because one of the things that we are all longing to do, every single one of us here, we're longing to find my people. Who are my people? Who's going to support me? Who's going to get me? Who's going to encourage me? Don't want them toxic folk. I want my people. But you know why we struggle to find my people? Because we don't understand who my person is. The one who we actually belong to. It's when we recognize who we actually belong to that we recognize who we belong among. We recognize God's people. In fact, this is something, listen, again, that carries on into the New Testament, this reality of our identity being found in recognizing that that we belong to God. Listen, listen. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because it just makes it super easy to understand. This is First Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Listen, this happens to be Paul writing again to Ephesian leaders, and he got some specific advice about what they need to remember as leaders. He says, guard yourselves and God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, notice, purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. Sometimes they'll go to a conference, people say, how's your church going? And I'll answer because I know what they mean. But the truth is, it ain't my church. It's not the trustee's church. It's the church of our Lord Jesus who purchased it with his own blood. You belong to Jesus. And even if you don't believe yet, he paid for you. You have a choice. You can rebel against that, but he paid for you. Listen, this is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul again writing, he says, you do not belong to yourself. Can't get much plainer than that. For you were bought, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your bodies. That's in the context of sexual purity. Can you see, listen, can you see how the stubbornness we have of thinking, I'm going to declare my own identity. I am who I think I am. I am who I declare I am. Can you see, no matter what that comes from, I'm not picking on any group. No matter where that comes from. Can you see how that actually goes against what the New Testament says about us as Christians? So as Jesus followers, we might have different sexual temptations, different ethnicities, different sort of economic uh, circumstances, different educational levels, but none of that is who we are. We are his because he purchased us with his own blood. And when we put any of those other identities above that, we're just being stubborn. See, see, the way God overcomes our stubbornness is by showing us who we belong to. Him. Him. I mean, it's so simple. I I think we just miss it all the time. Whose life are you living? His. He owns you. He purchased you. He made you. And he redeemed you. You're his. You're his. Now, I don't know how many of you know the value of belonging to someone, but it's precious. I am proud to be the, the husband of Sarah Brown. I belong to her. I am proud to be her husband. I'm glad that I'm hers and she's mine. But so much more than that, I'm glad to be a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm his. This is where the stubbornness begins to get overcome. But he does something more than this. Look at verse 11. Again, as he's talking about this, this, this principle or this, this command about the the first the consecration of the firstborn. Look at verse 11. It says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall And he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the wombs. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. This is interesting when you think about, he's calling them to do a work of redemption. In this context, when he calls Israelites to redeem their firstborn son or to redeem the donkeys that are born in this case, the redemption would be, we'll see later on in, in, in the law, the redemption is about you pay a certain amount of money to the temple to say, I'm recognizing this is the Lord's and I'm buying this back for myself, this, this person or this animal. I'm buying this back. Now, here's what's interesting. Why a donkey? Now, we know donkeys were a valuable beast of burden, but so were oxen. Why not use a word that's not specifically a donkey? Why not use a word that's just about four-footed beasts of burden? We don't know for sure. The text doesn't say, so I'm not being dogmatic, but I think it's because donkeys are known to be stubborn animals. And I think the context will bear this out. We'll come back to that. But also, listen, I want you to notice something that's even more sobering. What happens with a stubborn animal? Either it's redeemed, or it dies. It's sobering, isn't it? It's, God is being really clear here. He's insisting redemption is necessary. This is how he overcomes our, our stubbornness. I, I know sometimes you might come here, especially if, if you're visiting, you might go, this guy's a bit hellfire, this guy's a bit like heavy, you know, a bit intense. I don't know what your church background is. You might feel that. You might feel I'm too lightweight. I don't know, but anyway. But, but you might feel that way. People have felt that way. You're a bit too much about sort of judgment and stuff like that. But this is not about wanting anybody to be condemned. It's about recognizing that God's saying this is necessary. God saying this is necessary. Your redemption is necessary. What happens next, verse 14? What does God say? And in time to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? That is the consecration of the firstborn. You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Notice verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused... To let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And God says, it shall be a mark on your hands and the frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. In other words, it's not just the, the, the feast of unleavened bread, but this consecration of the firstborn. Feast of unleavened bread, once a year festival, consecration of the firstborn every time a firstborn is born, animal or human. In this church, that'd be a lot. (laughs) Every single time, it's a reminder, listen, it's a reminder to God's people how foolish it is to resist the will of God like Pharaoh did. Remember in the story, Pharaoh isn't the lone villain and Israel's the the hero of the story. No. Pharaoh's the villain. Israel is is both the victim and following suit and God's the hero. That's the way it works. We all have hearts like Pharaoh. But God with his strong hand overcomes our stubbornness. You know why? Because the firstborn is his. Yes? The firstborn that is Israel is his. But you know what the Bible says? Listen to this. Psalm 24-1, great verse to put to memory. Psalm 24-1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. If you can hear my voice, you belong to God, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. If you want to stubbornly deny that, this text would say you're being dumb. (laughs) If you want to submit to that, guess what? He'll overcome your stubbornness. As soon as you can admit, yes, Lord, I'm yours. you will overcome your stubbornness. In fact, if you're getting to a place where you think you need to do this, he's already overcoming your stubbornness. Verse 17, we're almost done. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although they were near, that was near, shorter way to go. But God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the, and the people of Israel went up uh, out of the land of Egypt, notice, equipped for battle. Isn't this interesting? So we're going to see here that, that his strong hand is ever-present. God doesn't just kind of dip in, do something, and walk away from us. He's always there. He's always working. Okay, But uh, l- notice what's happening. Because a strong hand is, is there, because his presence is always with us, we can know, as the Israelites know, that we are both protected from and equipped for battle. Isn't that interesting? They're equipped for battle, so make sure they don't have to fight. Isn't that interesting? Why? Why has God equipped them for battle and then make sure they don't get into a fight? Why? Listen, this is why. Because our confidence to fight must flow from our faith that God wins every battle. Isn't that why David was willing to fight Goliath? David wasn't like, I'll take him on. I'm tough. I can do it. No. He's like, why are you guys all scared? It's the Lord who fights. Let the Lord fight. I'll go out there. Let the Lord fight. It wasn't about, oh, I'm weak and and I can't do it, but I'll have faith that I can do it and I'll face the giant. That's rubbish. Those applications are rubbish. No, it's we're all weak, but this has got nothing to do with us. it has got to do with God who beats our enemies. Trust God. See, God, God equips us for battle and protects us from battle because he wants to grow us in a place where we fight from faith. God, you're the one who has to, has to figure this out. You're the one who's got to sort these things out. I mentioned many weeks ago that we, we were missold a, a car and it broke down and we've been sort of wrestling with the, what's called the ombudsman for months trying to get justice and we just found out we're not going to get justice. Which is a, is, is a blow. It's interesting because as we were praying for this, I had very little faith it was going to happen. Sarah had all faith God's going to give us justice. And now that it has not come to pass, I'm going, you know what? God's going to use us for good and Sarah's really struggling. I don't understand, Lord. So glad to be married that, you know, when you have that kind of uh, spiritual encouragement both ways. But, but here's the reality. We, we, we fought the good fight. We, we, we tried to, to, to do what we felt was right to pursue justice for the situation. We didn't get justice now, but guess what? God's still battling for us. And so maybe we'll never get justice this side of heaven about our our car. Maybe we won't. Maybe it will just be a big loss. That's okay. Because no one gets away with anything, including us. And so we're gonna fight, not from the fact that if we have just great faith, we're gonna conquer anything, no, but because our God wins every battle. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now this is quoting from way back to Genesis 50. When, when Joseph had died, they're all in Egypt. They've been promised a, a special place there, protection, a place of honor as these 75 Israelites, right? Because of what God had done through, through Joseph and what God had, had done to make sure that Israel uh, and all the world, all of Egypt was saved from famine. Joseph knew that God had promised a place for God's people. And so he says, look, I'm dying, but one day when God delivers our people into the land that he's promised us, take my bones with you. Isn't that interesting? What's that? That's faith. That's faith that God holds your future in his hands. I love this too because you know what's going on here when, when Moses quotes this? Because remember, that was, that was 400 years previous. What's going on is Moses is basically saying, look, the, the faith of past generations should encourage you to keep going on in faith. Anybody here ever read through Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody? Raise your hand so I can see. One, two, three. Three. Oh, you should be ashamed. No, I'm just teasing. You shouldn't be ashamed. But it's a great book to read. Fox's Book of Martyrs is basically just kind of a history of people who have kind of suffered for their faith throughout church history. It is, uh, it is like based on stories. It's not like, don't think that he was doing archeological research, Fox, when he wrote this, but it's still, he's taking all these stories, all these anecdotes he'd heard about how people were willing to suffer for Christ. I'll tell you what, you want your faith to be built up. You want to go, Lord, why do I not trust you more? Read that book. And see the faith that God gave past generations Because that same God can give you the same faith to keep walking. See, seeing God's faithfulness to past saints helps us take the next step because this is exactly what happens. Moses puts this in the context on purpose. And they moved, that's Israelites, moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. We don't know where these places are, but the point is they're moving forward. Why are they moving forward? Because they have Joseph's bones. They remember Joseph's faith. They saw what God had done by his strong hand. They're moving forward. In fact, this brings us to the last bit in verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. His strong hand is ever present. I love the fact that the way God does this is to show that his presence is 24-7. Now, they had a visible reminder. We don't have that so much. It'd be nice, but we don't have that so much. But you know what we have? We have a promise of a risen Savior. And that's even better. You might remember this. In John chapter 14, Jesus says this to his disciples. This is when he's telling them he's about to die. He's just told them that he's going to depart and be with the Lord, and they're quite sad. Their hearts are broken. So he says to them later on in the conversation, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. That's another of the same kind. In other words, another one like me, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. You can go forward in truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. What's Jesus' promise there? He comes to us. He's with us in fellowship via the Holy Spirit. Notice, too, the Holy Spirit's called he, not it. And I don't want to be nitpicky about this, but one of our problems about walking in the Spirit is when we treat the Spirit like some impersonal force. That's not Christianity. We need to relate to God's spirit as the spirit of Christ, who he is doing in us. We know Christ because his spirit is with us. He is with us. Here, here's the point. His strong hand is ever-present, so we can keep walking. Keep walking. So let me ask you a couple questions before we pray. And and be honest with yourself. Have you experienced this new life, this new identity that only God can bring by a strong hand? Have you you really experienced it? Because it is an experience to have. Are, Are you confident that you've been born of God's spirit, that Christ's spirit has given you life? You have a change of affection to what's more important to you. is not who you are as whatever your surname is, the family history you have. It's not who you are with whatever job you have. It's not who you are with whatever ethnicity you come from or culture you come from. It's not who you are with whatever plans or skill set you think you possess but that change of affection where you're like, Lord, I want to be yours more than anything else. If you have that change of affection, that's a, if you want that, let's say you don't still struggle with the other identities, but if you want that identity above all, that's a good indication that you've had that new life. But no. Be sure. And if you're not sure, ask. Because God wants to bring to you the deliverance he brought to Israel. He wants to bring you out of bondage as his children and into the land that he's promised to give us by his strong hand. You can trust a strong hand. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here who is not yet trusting in your strong hand, Lord, would today be the day of salvation for them? Would they be honest about that? Would they come and talk to, to, to someone who, whether that person brought them or if they talked to me or someone else, Lord, they would just come and say, I'm not sure or I want to know. But Lord, that they'd want that. Lord, would you change hearts that people would want to experience what you can do by your strong hand to bring them into that real relationship with you. And Lord, for those of us that know you, Father, those of us that that know that, that Christ did die for our sins, that he was risen for our justification, that he's in heaven praying for us and is our mediator and is the one who's coming back to make all things right. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to trust. Help us to keep walking, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Amen. All right, bless you guys.